When the children of Israel returned from their Babylonian captivity and Zerubbabel was leading them in the rebuilding of the temple, in all of the excitement of coming back to Jerusalem, they were really not prepared for what they found and what they saw. The devastation by the Babylonian army, plus the 70 years of uh, being uninhabited, it left it just a big pile of rubble and ruins. And the task of rebuilding the temple seemed almost insurmountable. Huge pile of stones, a mountain of stones, weighing probably between five and eight hundred pounds each. And they all had to be moved in order that they might be able to start to rebuild. So there was this mountain of stones that had to be moved to get the flat base to begin the rebuilding process. And when it looked so impossible is when the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel by way of that interesting vision of the two olive trees and the pipes coming from it into the candlesticks. And it was the word of the Lord from uh, the prophet Zechariah to Zerubbabel saying, It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who has despised the days of small things? Now, the beginning of the project actually seemed like days of small things. If you are familiar at all with building, you know the importance of laying the foundation, of getting the sub-work done, underground plumbing and the things that must go in before you can start actually framing the building and before you really see anything. It looks like really nothing much is being done because it's all subsurface. And it oftentimes is sort of discouraging because you're anxious to see some walls going up. You're anxious to see something above the ground. And these days of laying the foundation seem like days of small things when our ambitions and our desires are for so much more. But the question, who has despised the days of small things? 
And oftentimes we are prone, I think, in our ministry to despise the days of small things. We have ambitions for great things for God. But there is the important task of, first of all, getting rid of the rubble. And that's the task that God is doing so often in our lives as He is preparing us to be the instruments through which He can accomplish His purposes. And so I look at those desert days as days when God was preparing me in order that He might then use me to accomplish those things that He had before ordained that I should accomplish for His glory. God has ordained to use man in accomplishing His purposes here on earth. Now, the wisdom of God might be questioned It would seem to me that if God had chosen to do angels, angels rather, to do the work, it probably would have been done a lot more efficiently and a lot more effectively. But God chose to use men. And the reason, of course, we know As Paul's talking about the ministry, he said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels or clay pots. This glorious treasure, God put it in a clay pot. Why? That the glory may be to God and not to man. God wants to work. But God oftentimes has to get us out of the way before he can work. He has to remove the rubble out of our lives. And those are sort of desert years in the ministry. When we don't see much being done, it's all sub, kind of underground work. The work of God within, in order that God might then work without. Before the instrument can be used, it's necessary to prepare that instrument. And this is what Paul was referring to when he wrote to the church in Ephesus and said, For you are his workmanship, created together in Christ Jesus, unto the good works that God has before ordained that you should walk in them. What Paul is saying is that God has your life all mapped out. God has the work that He intends to accomplish through you all mapped out in His mind. God knows exactly what He desires to use you for. And in the meantime, you are His workmanship. In the meantime, God is working in you in order that He might prepare you for those good works that He has before ordained that you're to accomplish for Him. And so, desert years. 
when God is removing the rubble, preparing the instrument that he might then accomplish his work and his purposes through that instrument. The history of the nation of Israel is known as typical history. Typical because it is a type of the believer. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Now all of these things, talking about the nation of Israel and their history, all of these things happened to them. For examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So their bondage in Egypt was a type of a man's bondage in sin. Their deliverance from death through the blood of the lamb on the lintels and doorposts of the house was a type of our deliverance from death through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Their passage through the Red Sea, Paul said, was their baptism. And it is like our baptism where we become separated from the old life of the flesh and we now enter into a new relationship with God, a new life after the Spirit. Paul tells us that that rock there in the wilderness from which the water came that sustained their life, that rock was Christ. They're crossing over Jordan and coming into this land that God had promised is typical of our coming to the reckoning of our old man, our old nature to be dead. That we might fully walk after the Spirit. It's the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Where the old man is desperate. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. And then I thank God that through the Spirit. And it's our entering in. Having reckoned the old man to be dead. And now we enter into the glorious Land of promise, the life and the spirit, as we now begin to really see the fruitfulness of the ministry. Interesting, in all of the years in the wilderness, they had battles, but they never really gained any territory from those battles to speak of. It was not until they came into the land that they really began to possess the things that God had promised to them. Now, there was a legitimate desert experience between Egypt and Israel lay the great Negev desert and it was necessary to pass through that desert to get into the promised land and thus the journey with that many people and the accomplishing of the things that God wanted to accomplish while they were in the wilderness in teaching them important lessons 
to prepare them for the land of promise. There was that legitimate desert experience. But I would also suggest to you that there was an illegitimate desert experience. And that was when they came to the land of promise. The time to enter in. When through fear, which destroyed their faith, they turned back. And God then declared that they would roam and wander in that wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation had passed off. Those 40 years, minus the year or so at the beginning, were illegitimate desert experiences. And I'd like to sort of warn you tonight against illegitimate desert experiences. There are the legitimate, they're important. There is the necessity of removing the rubble. There is the necessity of the preparation of the vessel, the instrument, and, and that's legitimate. But so many are going through an illegitimate desert experience. I spent 17 years in the desert as God was preparing me for the work that He had before ordained that I should accomplish for Him. The reason why I spent so many years in the desert was I had to unlearn a lot of things before I could learn what God was wanting to teach me. And the educators will tell you that the unlearning and learning process is always much longer than just a learning process. And it is wise and it is good if you can learn without having to unlearn. But being many years in a denomination and trying to follow the denominational order and regime, there were a lot of things I had to unlearn before I could learn what God was wanting to teach me. It was rubble that God was removing. And there was such a big pile it took a long time. But what God had in mind for me was much greater than anything I had ever dreamed or imagined. Had you told me what God had planned to do, I would have sneered and laughed and, and mocked you. I would have called for the men in white coats to carry you away. I hadn't the least idea of what God had in mind. He didn't even give me a hint. 
I often have said to God, Lord, you could have made it a lot easier on yourself had you just given me a hint of what you were wanting to do. You could have saved yourself so much griping and so much complaining and all if you'd only let me know. I didn't know, God, that this is what you had in mind. You know, and that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. Because God wants us to just trust him. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Paul. All three use the analogy of a potter working with clay in forming a vessel. And in the analogies, God, of course, always is the potter. The wheel is the circumstances upon our life that God uses to mold and shape us into the form that he wants us. And we are the clay. And as long as we are pliable in the hands of the potter, he's able to form the vessel that he desires and the vessel that he can see in his mind. For as the potter starts his work on that clay, in his mind he knows what he plans to make out of that lump of clay. And that lump of clay in its formless shape is practically worthless. It's so common in all the earth. But yet in that clay there is the potential of something that is extremely valuable. It all depends on the skill of the potter. And Paul and Isaiah both make mention of the fact that the clay really has no right to say to the potter, Why hast thou made me thus? The sovereign power of the potter over the clay. And as Jeremiah watched the potter working on the clay, the vessel was marred in the hand of the potter. And so he brought it back down to a lumpless shape. No doubt there was a part of the clay that had not been fully kneaded and, and, and thus there was a, a dry spot, a hard spot in it. And when he put pressure on it, it marred the vessel. And so you take it back down and you put a little more water on it and you knead it and you get rid of the, the lumps. And then he saw him make another vessel as pleased the potter. And God gave him the lesson of Israel in the hands of God. He was able to take a nation that had been marred and remake of it a beautiful vessel for his glory. Now the interesting thing about the analogy of the potter and the clay is that the potter has in his mind exactly what he wants to make of that clay. He has the power to make of it a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. But in his mind, he knows what he wants to make out of that clay. On the other hand, the clay has no idea what's in the, 
mind of the potter. But there's only one way the clay can discover the mind of the potter, and that's to yield to the touch of the potter. And the only way you'll ever discover what God has purposed for your life is by your yielding to the touch of God upon your life. I had dreams of being a successful pastor. And to me, that was to pastor a church of 250 people. That's manageable. You can know them all by first name. You can become really involved in their lives. It's enough that they can pay you an adequate salary and you can have a missions program and you can also have enough time to play golf on Monday. And it's not too big to handle. It's not too, it's not too demanding on your time. And so my ambition was to one day have a church of 250. And I felt that I had the ability to create that size of a church. And as I began the ministry, I was full of ideas and I had high hopes. I went to a little church in Prescott, Arizona. I received a $15 a week salary. But with all of my ideas and all of my skills and ingenuity, I knew that it would only be a matter of a short time until that church would begin to grow and we could really begin to see some things accomplished in Prescott. Fifteen dollars a week isn't much, and it was there that God began to teach me His faithfulness in supplying all of our needs. More than once. <laughs> in fact, it was a weekly routine. Fifteen dollars didn't carry us usually past Monday. And I didn't get paid till Friday. So from Monday to Friday was living by faith. Trusting God. And I learned the faithfulness of God. We never went without a meal. My second church was in Tucson, Arizona. I received a salary of $25 a week. I thought I was in Fat City. But God taught me to learn, God taught me to live simply. I realized that I didn't need a fancy car. 
I learned how to make a dollar stretch. I learned how to buy things at special prices. And I learned that I didn't need a lot of things. I learned to live simply and frugally. In the second church that we pastored, the desert, Tucson, there was a large room at the back of the church. They introduced us to that large room as our parsonage. The restrooms of the church were up in the front of the church and we had to go all the way through the church auditorium to get to the restrooms. There was a linoleum counter. There was a hole in the wall and a spigot through the hole. And so we had cold water and we had a dish pan on the inside. So we had running water in our parsonage. But we had to heat it to do the dishes. And when we did the dishes, we'd have to throw the water out the back door into the yard because we had no drains back there, no sink. I built a uh, combination uh, bookcase on the living room side and a counter on the kitchen side so there would be room for the pots and pans on the kitchen side and my books on the living room side and it also served as a divider between the kitchen and the living room. We put up a curtain between the living room and our bedroom and we lived there behind the church for a year and one of the members in the church lived about a half a block away. They let us come over and get a bath at their house and Kay was able to use their uh, washing machine for our laundry. We learned to brush our teeth using a glass of water and going to the front door and, and rinsing your mouth and spitting it out in the yard. And here the Lord taught us to be content in whatever state we were in, to make the best of it. And of course, Kay and I are so in love that, you know, we had each other and what more could you wish? And of course, at this time, we also had the most beautiful little girl you could ever imagine. And we enjoyed we came, became used to that. Of course, on $25 a week, but now we had a little girl. And, and so we were still learning to live simply. And still learning to trust God to supply our needs. I remember one night when... And well, most of the time when we were broke, we were broke all the time. But this one night, Kay was about eight and a half months pregnant with Chuck Jr. And 
we were needing money for dinner. And I got a phone call. And this fellow asked me if I would be willing to perform a wedding. He had his license and he and his girlfriend wanted to get married. And they were willing to get married just there in the parsonage. Well, of course, this, you know, this little divided thing that we lived in. So they came by, never seen him before, never, I don't even know how he got my number. But we married them, of course, they didn't have any witnesses, so Kay had to come out. She was embarrassed because she was pregnant and, and, uh, you know, just about ready to deliver. But, Signed as the witness, and the guy gave me a hundred dollars. Oh boy, I'd never seen a hundred dollars before. <laughs> but here the Lord also taught us that if we would be faithful in little things and be content, that He would give us more. We had a very wealthy couple that started coming to our church. They were an older couple. They were snowbirds. They had a business up in Minnesota, a successful business. And they had a home in Tucson. And they would come and live the winter months in Tucson and then move back for the spring and summer months in Minnesota. So they came to us and they said, would you be willing to live in our home here in Tucson this summer while we move back to Minnesota? We said, oh my, that's that. Oh, we would love that. That's thrilling. Wall to wall carpeting, beautiful furnishings, just a beautiful home. And Kay and I were able to live in that that summer. And we were, well, we thought we were in heaven. Chuck Jr. was born by then and and uh, just everything we needed. I mean, the dish, you know, we had a sink, we had washing machine, everything. I mean, it was, it was lovely. By the time they got back from Minnesota, The church at that time was now able to rent a house for us. And so we didn't have to move into that little one room. In fact, we used it for what it was intended originally for, for Sunday school. We divided it up and used it for Sunday school rooms. But the people, when they got back, were so thrilled with the way Kay had cleaned up the house. She's fastidious. And uh, she had gone through and just, it was spotless. It was beautiful. They gave us $100 for living there. (laughs) They had rented it out the year before and the renters had done so much damage it took them $500 to put it back in shape. And thus they were so thrilled to have the thing so neat and clean and, and all that they paid us. But the lessons that we were learning were so important. As God was preparing us 
for the good works that he had before ordained that we should walk therein. The third church we pastored was in Corona, California. It was here that the Lord taught me the important lesson that apart from him I could do nothing. We had seen some growth in the church in Tucson. We had watched as God added to the church. I really thought that I was adding to the church, however. And uh, I thought, I now have the formula. I can go anywhere and apply the formula and be successful. I know how to do it. So when we were offered this little church in Corona, we wanted to move back to California. I wanted to be near my family. And so, um, though it was a small little church, and again, it was a going back uh, to a $25 a week salary, I figured in no time, you know, this is a snap, we'll be able to fill this church and, you know, we're going to have a great ministry here. We had 52 people the first Sunday morning. And uh, I gave it my best efforts. I went door to door throughout the entire city over a period of time, introducing myself to people, inviting them to our church. I had every contest that you could think of. And at the end of the two years of ministry there, we ended up with 27 people. Seven of them were my family. My mother and dad drove out and attended our church there. And by then, Jeff had been born. And that was the only real addition we had to the church in the two years. And it was there that God taught me the important lesson that Jesus gave to us in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it was there I learned that I had to put my trust and confidence completely in the work of God. Well, we went from there to Huntington Beach. This was my big opportunity. It was here that God transformed my life and my ministry. And some of the most important lessons were learned in Huntington Beach.
The church had a salary of $40 a week. The church had a parsonage, two-bedroom house right next door to the church. And we thought we were rich. It was there in Huntington Beach that I gave my two years of topical sermons. And I was good for two years. And up till this time, I had spent two years in each of the churches and then moved on. But the two years were over and I didn't want to move on. Huntington Beach was so nice. Best surf. And at that time, there were only 5,900 people living in Huntington Beach. And each morning I would go down with the publisher of the newspaper and the owner of the drugstore, George Farquhar and Sam Terry. We would meet down at the pier at 8 o'clock in the morning. And we would watch the surf to see which side was breaking best, south or north side. And we'd go out and have the whole surf in Onion Beach to ourselves for a couple of hours. And then get on with the day's business. This was the closest thing to heaven on earth you could find. It was outstanding. But I'd run out of sermons. Now in those desert years, the greatest difficulty I had was finding a text to preach on. I'd spend most of the week going through the Bible, leafing through, to find a text that would jump out at me so I could then preach on it. Developing the text wasn't that hard, but finding the text. That Bible's such a big book. You have to go through and find a text. And... So I was really in a dilemma. I wanted to stay in Indian Beach. As the best school system, all of the oil wells were operating then, and so they had all of the money in taxes from the oil fields. The, the grade school had swimming pools, and, and the kids had uh, could go swimming in, in grade. They taught them swimming in grade school. I mean, it was it was just perfect. And and uh, both Jan, uh, well, Jan had started school by then, and we wanted to stay. I was reading the book, The Apostle John, by Griffith Thomas. And when I got to chapter 7, I believe it was, he gave outline studies on the first epistle of John. And I started reading those outline studies, and I thought, these are tremendous outlines. This fellow really has great insight. Wonderful outlines. I counted them. There were 46. And I thought, wow, that's a whole year. I can stay in Huntington Beach for another year. Of course, it'll take a dramatic change in my ministry style. 
You see, part of the rubble that God had to remove was my desire to conform to the denomination and be an evangelist. Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, said, Paul and an apostle by the will of God. I was doing my best to be Chuck an evangelist, but I couldn't say by the will of God. It was by the will of the denomination. Because they taught that the primary purpose of the church was the evangelization of the world. And so I felt that you had to give an altar call and every sermon had to be an evangelistic sermon. Always ended with an altar call. But I I found myself really frustrated. Because there would be times when you'd have a tremendous evangelistic sermon in your heart. I mean, the notes, the outline, what powerful. This sermon would convince the hardest sinner to commit his life to Jesus Christ. You're going all pumped up. I mean, things just burning in your heart. And as they're singing the songs, you look over the congregation and you know everyone by first name. There's not a sinner in the house. Do you know how frustrating it is to have the most powerful evangelistic sermon that was ever preached and no sinner to preach it to? At this time, it's too late to change the sermon. But you can put a few additions onto it. If you people were the kind of Christians God wants you to be. If you weren't so lazy, you'd be out inviting your neighbors to come to church with you. You wouldn't just come by yourself. You'd bring sinners with you. And you begin to rebuke them. But then the altar call is for recommitment. You're a miserable failure in your Christian experience. Now you need to recommit your life to Jesus. And I would beat the sheep. Taking out my frustrations. But I also learned in those desert years that sick sheep can't reproduce no matter how much you beat them. I announced to the congregation in Huntington Beach that we're going to change things a bit. On Sunday morning, we're going to study 1 John. There were three reasons why John wrote the book. I want you to find the three reasons. And next Sunday morning when you enter church, I'll meet you at the door and I want you to be able to tell me the three reasons why John wrote his first epistle. By the middle of the week, we started getting telephone calls. Chuck, I've read the thing through eight times. I only find two reasons. Are you sure there's three? Yep, there are three. Find it. That Sunday morning, as the people came, they were filled with smiles and they said, it took me 10 or 12 times, but I found all three. They're this right, you know. And I preached on the reasons why John wrote his first epistle. 
Then there are six places where John refers to Jesus as our example. I said, I want you to find all six places. He says, as he or even as he. Again, they were reading it four or five times, six, seven times to find all six places. Then there are false professions that people make. I want you to find the seven false professions that people make. Then there are reasons why we know what we know. Find those. And they started reading First John. And using pulpit commentary and some other commentaries, I was able to stretch out First John to a whole year. Expository teaching of the Word. But I discovered an amazing thing. In that year's time, though I was just teaching the Word, we have more people come to Christ and more people baptized than any other time in my ministry. And the church had doubled in attendance in that year's time. In Bible college, I had a professor who said the book of Romans would revolutionize any church. I had read Romans and it didn't do anything for me, but... (laughs) I'm always up for a revolution. So when we were through with First John, I said, now we're going to study the book of Romans. I didn't know anything about Romans. And so I got the commentaries on Romans and started studying the book of Romans. And I found out that it revolutionized me. I discovered the grace of God. All the while I have been trying to earn the blessings of God. I discovered in Romans I don't have to earn them. If I earn them, then that's wages. And I learned that God wanted to bless me though I wasn't deserving or worthy of the blessings. The people discovered that too. And God began to bless. Bless my ministry The church again doubled in size. And it was exciting. In fact, it became so successful that when one of the largest churches of the denomination had problems with a pastor over moral issues, they called me and asked me if I would take that church. And reluctantly, we left Huntington Beach. But God had already taught us the lessons that he wanted to teach us. And I was now Chuck, the pastor teacher, by the will of God. I knew my calling. I knew my election at this point. The desert years were over. Now it was feeding the sheep. And I discovered another important lesson. 
And that is, healthy sheep will reproduce naturally. The natural function of healthy sheep is reproduction. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. I discovered in those years that what did I discover? <laughs> that's, that's an age thing, you know. It's very handy, you know. All I have to say to my wife anymore is, well, honey, I forgot. <laughs> she buys it. <laughs> because she forgets too. <laughs> she forgets what she told me to do, so. <laughs> when Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, he told us the purpose of the church. In chapter 4, he said that God has said in the church, the various ministers, ministries, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I no longer bought into the concept that the primary purpose of the church was the evangelization of the world, but I now realize that the purpose of the church is for the perfecting of the saints, the building up of the body of Christ, bringing them into maturity, into the fullness of the life in Christ. I learned that Jesus said he would build his church. And all of these desert years, I was endeavoring to build his church. And I was extremely unsuccessful at it. But when I came to the discovery that it is his church and he promised he would build his church and that he called me not to build his church, but he called me to feed the sheep. As a pastor, as a shepherd, watch over them, tend them, love them, take care of them, feed them. And as they grew and matured, they reproduced. And the net effect was evangelism such as you can't dream, such as you cannot conceive, because the healthy sheep are out evangelizing the whole community, wherever they're in school, wherever they are working, wherever they are meeting in the markets or whatever. They are, their lives are a witness for Jesus Christ, and they're evangelizing. It may be that you're going through some desert experiences. 
It may be that God is in the process of removing some of the rubble in your life. He is sort of getting rid of that pile of rubble in order that he might start the building process. And as you look at the work, it may seem like little things. But remember, at the time of Zerubbabel, they didn't despise the days of little things. Because they were looking forward to the things that God was wanting to do once he had prepared the place. And we look forward to what God wants to do once he's prepared the instrument and the vessel. Those exciting days when the Spirit of God works and you realize it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the Spirit, saith the Lord. Important lessons, if you're ever to be what God would have you to be, just yield to him and you'll discover what's in the mind of our Father. And chances are it's far greater than anything that was in your mind to begin with. It sure was with me. Far and above exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. Father, we do thank you for the privilege, the honor of being the servants of the Most High God, the creator of the universe, the supreme ruler over all. And to think that he has chosen us to be his servant. To accomplish his purposes. To be an instrument through which he can do the work he's desiring to do in the hearts and lives of people. Oh, what a privilege, what a blessing. How blessed we are. Thank you, Lord for this privilege. And Lord, for those that are going through the desert years, may they not spend an illegitimate, lengthy time in the desert, but may they learn the lessons and move on. Into the things, Lord, you're desiring and you've purposed to do through them. In Jesus' name we pray.